0: Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O. And folks, we are wrapping up 2020. 2020 has just been, uh, I don't even know how to describe 2020. There's lots of words that come to mind, and I'm sure you have lots of words to come to mind. And I will say it is unique. How about we go with that as the word that we are going to use? We learned a lot of things. We learned how to do a lot of things in situations we never thought we would have to do them in before, but we learned and we got through it. And through that year, Scaling Up H2O has brought you some great guests, some great episodes, and we all learned together through the magic of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. So I thought... What we would do today is something we've never done before. We are going to replay segments of some of our most popular shows that we produced in the year 2020. So I hope that you enjoy this special episode where we look back in 2020. Now, the first episode that we're going to look at is episode 119, and this was the very first episode that I did last year. If only I had a crystal ball, if only I could tell the Scaling Up Nation that we were going to live through a pandemic that year, this year. Folks, we would have had a very different year, but I did not have a crystal ball. I did not know anything more than anybody else. And we were talking about regular goal planning. And I know I spoke a lot about this during the year of 2020, that a lot of us had goals and because of the pandemic, we had to reset our goals. Now, notice I didn't say we had to completely cancel our goals. Cause I know there were a lot of people out there that thought that that's what they had to do. Their goals just weren't gonna get done. They had to wipe them clean and they were just gonna see what happened this year. So I hope that you were one of the people that realized that you had to sit down, look at your goals and see what you could accomplish. Maybe it wasn't the complete goal. Maybe it was a piece of that goal. Maybe it was taking that goal and using different metrics that you could use during a pandemic. Whatever it was, I hope that you were successful this year. But what we're gonna listen to next is the very first episode I did in 2020, sort of the tail end where I'm explaining the SMART Acronym SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Realistic, and Time Bound. So let's listen to that episode. The last letter in SMART is T, and that stands for Time Bound. So this is we are stating when we are going to get that goal done. The way you want to do this is you want to have a specific date that you will have the item done. You write that down, and that's the date that you expect to get things done. Now, normally, that's where smart planning stops. And I have noticed that some people will get some items done, and some people won't. So I started reading several books, many of which were last year. And there was one book that I read that I really thought addressed this. It was a book called The 13-Week Year. And again, the goal is many of us don't have a planning issue. Many of us have an execution issue. And that's exactly what The 13-Week Year dealt with. The specific thing the book dealt with was that a year was too long. It was just too long for us to get a hold of and make sure we were effective with that point in time. So here's the example. In January, if we have a goal that's due in December, if we're off, we're not really upset about it. Maybe February again, we're not too upset about it. But when December comes around and we see that we don't have a lot of days left to get this goal done we're now working frantically on it. What they propose in the book is why not use that to our benefit? So they say split up your year into four 13-week years. So each and every 13 weeks, that's a quarter, by the way, you are going to pretty much treat it as the end of the year. So what am I going to do this year or in their language? What am I going to do in the next 13 weeks? That's going to be our goals. The other thing they say is we have to evaluate what we say we're going to do. We've identified all of those issues. Well, now we have to make sure that we really did solve those issues. So what they have in the 13-week year, and you don't need this matrix, but it does help. And by the way, if you want the book, you can go to an affiliate site we set up for Amazon. It's scalinguph2o.com forward slash 13. That's the number 13 week year. So forward slash 13 week year. Anyway, they have a template in there. And basically, what they're having you do is write down everything you're going to do each and every week. Now, it's not as complicated as it sounds. So I'm not writing every one thing. I'm pretty much writing themes of what I'm going to do and what I'm going to achieve on week one, week two, week three, and so on. And a lot of those things repeat. Like it might mean I'm going to do three extra sales calls each and every week and then that just follows through. So they don't have to be unique for each and every week. But we are going to evaluate how well we ended each and every week. Did we do what we said we needed to do by working backwards to achieve those goals? So we have what we said we were going to do week one. Did we do that? If we did, great. If we just hit the target, we can move to week two. We can do exactly what week two said. If we overachieve the target, maybe we can adjust part of that or we can just keep it knowing that we're going to complete it early. Now, let's say we did not hit the target. We came short of that target. Well, now in week two, we're going to have to do something different to get us back on track. So at the end of our 13 weeks, we're going to hit that target. And folks, I truly believe that's where our planning breaks down. When things happen, we don't ever reevaluate our plan and adjust for what we need to do to get back on track. And that's what the book taught me to do. And that's what I teach people to do when we do planning like this is we have to come up with weekly metrics of what we're going to do. And if we don't hit those, we have to adjust those weekly metrics. But just changing the number isn't what we're talking about here. We have to evaluate what's going on in our lives so we can adjust What our plan needs to be. Now, maybe that soccer game now has a bunch of playoff games that we weren't thinking about. We have to adjust for that. And if we do that each and every week, we can still adjust it to hit our target. Now, let's say you didn't hit your target because you spent three days binge watching a full house marathon on Netflix. Well, folks... Not much you can do about that. You're just not spending your time right, unless your goal was to watch all the full house on Netflix. I think you get what I am saying. We're going to take what life is teaching us. We're going to apply that and we're going to always reevaluate our plans. I do that on a weekly basis. I advise you to do that on a weekly basis and see where we are and make slight adjustments So we don't end up in the wrong place. So if we were off at three degrees when we took off at LAX and we made slight adjustments all the way, and by the way, that's what autopilot is doing when the planes are in the air, we're touching down on the destination because flight plans are continuously changing and headings are changing, but those little tiny changes Making sure that we're still going to the proper destination is the same mindset that we need to have when we are planning. The other item I want to bring up around planning is how much do you plan? And I know everybody gets excited in January. They're thinking, I have all these things I want to get done, and maybe they come up with 20 goals they want to get done this year. Folks, when it comes to goal planning, less is more. In that same book, they did a study, and that study was how many goals that were assigned to a particular person, I think they even did teams, and then how much either the person or the teams got accomplished. So the first set was three to four goals over whatever the assigned period was. Most of the time, that team achieved three to four goals. They got those completed. Well, then they went and they assigned five to eight goals. On average, those teams and those individuals got zero to one of those done. And then they assigned nine or more and the teams they looked at got zero done. So I think what we can take from this is what are the most important things that we need to be working on and then make sure we limit that to a small amount. Folks, three to four goals within a year from that data, that's still really hard to work on. And it looks like that's just enough, that's the Goldilocks number it looks like, that we can get these things accomplished. That was a lot of information this episode. So let's do a quick recap. So start off thinking about what you learned from last year. And then look at why you accomplish what you accomplished and why you didn't accomplish the things that didn't get completed. Then think about all the things that you want to get completed this year. Again, our goal is less is more. And then take those items through the SMART tool. And SMART is specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. And then make sure that you never stop planning. You look at each and every week. You look at the metrics of the week. And if you're not on track, you make adjustments each and every week so you can make a course correction to find the destination that you said you wanted to achieve. Folks, that is good advice. And I almost think that the staff here at Scaling Up H2O is poking a little bit of fun because I mispronounced the title. I misspoke the title of that book. It's actually called The 12-Week Year. And yes, if you do go to the affiliate link that we set up, 13-Week Year, that will work. But also the real one works as well. If you go to 12-Week Year, so scalinguph2o.com forward slash 12-Week Year, it'll take you to that Amazon affiliate link. So Just thinking that my staff is poking a little bit of fun, but it is great advice. And folks, now more than ever, I think is a great time for us to take stock of what we achieved this year and what we want to achieve next year. But we need to use the knowledge that we learned this year so we can make next year even more effective. Now, the next episode we are going to listen to is an excerpt from episode 120, and that was one of the episodes that I did with Janet Stout. Janet Stout has been a great contributor to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And folks, let's face it, you and the Scaling Up Nation have sent me a lot of questions about Legionella, what we as a water treatment professional need to know. And I've tried to give you as much information as I could with that. We even devoted the entire month of August to being more aware about Legionella. So let's listen in on a question that I asked Dr. Janet Stout. One of the comments that I get from several of my listeners is they do try to talk to their customers about Legionella. We have to do something to take negligence off the table. And they say, fine, just test for Legionella. Well, if we test for something and we don't know what we're going to do, if we find it or when we find it, what do we do then? So we need to figure out now what we're going to do before we test. And they say, no, 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 we're just going to test and hopefully we'll find zero. What advice do you have for them and what should they be saying to their customers?
1: You want to have a plan to deal with whatever the result is of the testing that you perform. So, for example, it's a a healthcare facility and it's somewhere around 200 beds. And if it's in New York State, the recommendation is a minimum of 10 outlets plus the hot water tank. And you're looking to see whether or not more than three out of those 10 or more than 30% of the faucets or showers that you've tested are positive. And if it is, then you need to have a plan for what to do in response to that. So this kind of speaks to a couple of different issues. One is uh, the laboratory partner that you have can help you interpret what those results mean. And if it's, if it's special pathogens, one of the things I always say to water treaters is, I'm happy to get on a call with you and your client and talk about what the meaning is of these results. And it gets complicated because what kind of Legionella is it? How extensive is the positivity? What is the relationship to disease risk? These are all things that I've sort of spent my entire life uh, developing a foundation for prevention around, and that goes back a long way. And so I, I think that it is important to have this discussion with the client that. What are the action steps in response? And luckily, in 2019, we have the ASHRAE Standard 188, we have CMS, we have AWT, we have CTI, we have a a body of, of documents that we can point the client to and say, here are some examples that we can draw from in terms of response. I really like the New York State public health regulation for healthcare because it follows. Our 30% metric for uh, assessing when the risk is increasing for healthcare patients, what got incorporated into the New York City guidance document is based on an, an Australian-New Zealand standard, which has logarithmic changes, you know, tenfold changes in Legionella concentration in your cooling tower water and STEPs what to do in response to those positive results. So I think if you have a client and you have that kind of conversation with that client about how you can help them uh, get good information from experts on how to, to manage that situation should it occur, then... I'd say probably nine times out of 10, they would be positively responsive to that guidance. And so this also sort of speaks to when the water treatment provider provides guidance to their client, directs them to information, and that's an added service uh, that's really important. And I don't know if you've ever heard this trace, but sometimes you have clients that you want to donate to your competition. Surely not. And if after all of that discussion where you're really trying to help them uh, both in terms of a public safety issue or a patient safety issue, but also for their own good, they continue to reject that. Some water treatment professionals have those clients sign, "I've I've been made aware of the offer, you know, for testing for Legionella and I respectfully decline and they sign their name and the date. And that's, I thought, was a brilliant thing to incorporate into that relationship for two reasons. It protects the water treatment professional. It it documents that you've provided this information and this option to your client uh, and provides documentation that they've refused. Because as I said earlier, Legionella cases get litigated more often than many other infections. I get calls every week from lawyers, right? And so you have to protect yourself from that risk. And then it also puts that client kind of going, well, this is probably a little more serious than I thought, and maybe I should do it. And and you want to preach the... You know, don't be the penny wise and pound foolish person where you're saving a few hundred dollars here. But when the case and the public health people come knocking at your door, now you're spending $500,000 in an outbreak investigation. So those are very powerful messages that can be delivered to the clients to help them make the right decision. And the one I think that most of your audience wants them to make.
0: Nation, I hope that through the year of 2020, through all the episodes that we brought you about Legionella, that you are more versed on the topic. More importantly, I hope that you are having better conversations with your clients, and I hope you're using the advice that Dr. Stout gave us in the previous segment. The next episode we're going to listen in on is episode 122 And this is where we spoke with Reed Hutchinson of HOH. And Reed and I were talking about a system that we both use in our companies. And we both contribute a lot of the successes that we've had in our companies because of us using this operating system called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. I was hoping we could take a few moments and talk about what EOS is and specifically as a water treatment company owner, why you were seeking something like EOS and what it's done for you.
2: Yeah, so our, our EOS journey um, really began even prior to, to me coming on board at HOH. So I've been been here for about five years and it was just as I was coming on uh, that my dad made the decision to uh, implement EOS within Hoh, And so that was in 2014. At the time, he was actually engaged in a peer CEO group through Convene. And uh, with the facilitator there, um, on one of their days, when they were meeting together, an EOS implementer came in and presented the, the model to them. And out of that meeting, my dad was pretty much convinced that EOS was exactly what HOH had needed to, to move forward. He described it at the time that we were a $30 million company operating like a $10 million company, which, you know, revenue numbers don't paint a full picture of what's going on. But, you know, I think most people could relate, you know, you you may be doing a lot, um, but you're still operating on the same old uh, principles and and systems you used before. And we were just simply not in a position where we could grow. We had actually recently acquired a company uh, that had grown our operation, by a third and our existing management team at the time just struggled to get their arms around integrating that new company and figuring out how to operate at a different level. And so my dad saw EOS really as a as a shortcut to put in place the systems and the structures and the processes from which the management team could operate the business more profitably and position us uh, to grow. And then for me, you know, as I've come in uh, to different management roles, it's been super helpful for my own experience because I didn't have a ton of management experience prior to HOH. And so EOS talks a lot about getting the right people in the right seat and making sure that everybody in their role is clear on what they're accountable for, what their priorities are, and that they get, want, and have the capacity to do their job. And that simple framework, those words I'm using, comes straight out of the playbook that EOS provides you. And for a new manager like myself, that gave me a solid foundation from which to make decisions uh, and and oftentimes manage people that were my superiors uh, in experience and, and age. And so I didn't necessarily fall back on my own knowledge or experience. I would typically fall back to the systems and to the playbook that we had all submitted ourselves to. So it was hugely valuable for my dad to get his arms around the business, upgrade the management team. Uh, and then for new managers like myself, it gave us a framework from which we could develop and run the business. And so we're still using it today. It's evolved quite a bit over five years. It didn't necessarily happen all at once. But the, the ultimate goal with the model is not to just be on EOS. It's to eventually kind of shape the EOS model into your own model, uh, which we call the HOH way. So it's an ongoing discipline we're, we're utilizing, falling back to in order to stay disciplined. Because we want to operate profitably and we want to grow. And EOS is kind of like our, you know, Microsoft Windows operating system for the business. Uh, It makes tangible some of the things that are really intangible about managing and leading. And I think it's been a place we've been able to create a lot of value from. Uh, It doesn't give you all the answers, but it it gives you sort of the canvas and the, the framework to be able to build on.
0: Nation, I just have to say that using EOS has been one of the best decisions that we have made as a company. And we made that decision about six years ago. And my entire team embraced it. We don't know what we don't know. And when we learn something that gives us a glimpse of how to operate better as a company... I will be honest, a few people were resistant to it, but once we started explaining it and once it started solving problems that we were all having, everybody got behind it. I will tell you, there was one individual that didn't get behind it and eventually he decided to leave and that was probably one of the better decisions that was made, he actually made it, because of EOS. It makes sure that we have right people in the right seats And it gives us ways to make sure that all cylinders are firing, that all people are rowing in the right direction. So if you're curious about EOS, that's all from a book called Traction. And you can go to an affiliate site that we set up on Amazon. So scalinguph2o.com forward slash traction, and you can get the book that Gino Wickman wrote that I was recommended to read years ago, about five, six years ago, as I mentioned, by my business coach that really changed how we do business in our company. Now, folks, we just listened to Reed, and now we're going to listen to an excerpt from episode 125 with Justin Ranger. And folks, I want to let you know, both Reed Hutchinson and Justin Ranger are members of the Rising Tide Mastermind And I have to tell you, that has been one of the hugest successes in the year 2020. You know, I lead those groups. And I have to say, with all of the people getting together on a weekly basis, the things that I have learned from these individuals has just been invaluable. And making sure that we're going through our processes, making sure we're going through our issue-solving track. Each and every one of the members has grown this year. Folks, we have been so successful, we have actually launched two more groups this past December. So the Rising Tide Mastermind has really taken off in the water treatment community. I want to thank all of the people that are part of it. And if this is something that you're curious about, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind read about it, see if this is something that sounds interesting to you. I will tell you, most all the people that joined the Rising Tide Mastermind never even heard of the term mastermind. Now that they've been involved, some for over a year, they have found it as their secret weapon to make sure that they are getting their key issues solved and they are pushing themselves to make sure they get to the next level. At the same time, they're helping others get there too. So, again, scaling up h2o.com forward slash mastermind. See if this group is right for you. If it's not, I urge you to find a group like this that can help you, that is right for you. Because folks, as you've heard me say before, life is too short to do it alone. And frankly, it's just too complicated as well. Well, next, like I said, we are going to listen to episode 125. And we're talking to Justin Ranger about safety. Yeah, so nobody ever plans to get hurt, and you've done something a hundred times, and it's that hundred and first time where something happens. I'm going to call Mark Lewis out for a second. Uh, He was inspecting a boiler that was opened up, and he had been on top of this boiler dozens of times. Well, it just so happened that this was the time that the ladder slipped and he fell off, and luckily he didn't get hurt, but they had to report that as as an incident. And then uh, they ended up putting some safety equipment there where he didn't need a ladder anymore. The next time he inspected it, they now had a catwalk up there and a a fixed ladder. So, um, you know, you you never know when those things are going to happen. And in that story, he was doing everything right. He had somebody holding the ladder for him and he wasn't really overreaching. For some
3: reason, the ladder just gave way and he went down. That's the thing. I I remember one of an incident, you know, it's kind of embarrassing now, but Early on in my career, I just you know, could have received some more training and just didn't know. I was at a customer's facility, small boiler, and um, needed to replace a stainless steel check valve that injected the chemical into the boiler feed line. And so I just went over and turned the feed pump and to the off position and went over to the boiler and closed the isolation valve and started to unscrew the check valve. And I, I forget, I walked away from it for a second... Uh, The valve wasn't all the way unscrewed. But in the meantime, one of the plant operators had walked in the door and walked around and saw that the feed pump handoff auto switch was in the off position and said, oh, that should be an auto and flipped it on. And, you know, hot DA water started spraying out of the loose pipe fitting. And fortunately, nobody got hurt and nothing was damaged. But that's just a situation that that really opened my eyes, like, wow, there's real potential for people to, to be injured. And, you know, obviously in that situation, the plant personnel should have been notified to the work that was going on and the equipment should have been locked out and tagged out properly.
0: So from that incident, is that now something that you do is use uh, lockout tagout?
3: Yeah. So that's, that's right, is always working with the operators and then following lockout tagout procedures. You know, the the whole idea behind that is removing the potential energy from a system so that way you're not injured, especially when you're in a plant where there's multiple people working out uh, or working in that area.
0: And Justin, I got to say, I'm really surprised at the number of water treaters that don't carry lockout tags and the hasp with them so they can actually lock out a power source. I was with somebody and they were working on a controller and the controller was actually energized in the other room. And the only way that you could disconnect it was to, you know, flip the, the breaker that it was on. And they flipped the breaker and their hands were inside this controller. And they uh, were hoping nobody would flip that breaker back. And that's a, that's a little bit too much faith that I want to have. It'd be very easy just to, you know, go ahead and isolate that to notify people with that lockout tagout system. That, hey, something's going on, and if you flip this, there's a potential that you might hurt somebody. So, those things are cheap. Carry those with you. And and another thing, and I think we were talking about this earlier, I'm surprised how many people don't realize that uh, they have to conform to the plan of that customer when they're on their site. So if you and I work for the same company and we had our training within our water treatment company, that doesn't count. We also have to be trained on that specific site. And a lot of people don't realize that.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Well, and there's a big difference between customers. You know, you might be working at a small schoolhouse where their training program is probably pretty minimal. Uh, they may not have a formal lockout tagout program, even though they should, all the way up, you know, to heavy industry where they're going to have really strict safety protocol, probably exceed the OSHA standards. And they're going to have a written plan that you can join in and get trained on and be a part of. And. And so I think it's good for us to just be educated on all those things, to know when the responsibility falls with us, when it falls with the customer, and then we can help be a catalyst. Say, you know, Mr. Customer, if you weren't aware, you should have a written lockout tagout program for this equipment, and we should get all the operators trained on it, so that way no one gets hurt.
0: And that's a huge resource, and most water treaters aren't going to do that, so if that customer can find one that is,
3: they're probably going to keep them on for a while. Well, I think that's exactly right. I think that's... That's the next level besides just being a really good water treater, knowing your trade well and doing uh, the right things in terms of protecting the equipment to being a professional and being a real asset to the customer in every aspect, being the vendor that's on site. And certainly that includes safety. I, I saw a video on LinkedIn the other day. It, um, it was amazing. It was a, a construction site. There's like a two or three story opening on the side of a building with a crane and a forklift. And it was like a, a great all forklift on the ground and then a crane. And then it was just like a normal sized forklift that they were either trying to get into the hole or pulling out of the hole to put it on the ground. And at any rate, they certainly didn't secure it properly. And all the chains broke and the forklift that they were putting into or pulling out of the building ended up falling all the way to the ground. And it was just like, wow, these are these are really serious situations. And we want to make sure that we're not jeopardizing our own lives or anybody else's by anything we're doing when we're on a construction site or customer's location.
0: Yeah, and I think you make a great point. A lot of times the customer doesn't really think what could happen if you do this. They're just thinking, I need it done. You're there, you're willing to do it. And then the water treater will think, well, I'm not thinking about what could happen if I do this. I just want to make the customer happy. It's something simple that I can do. But I think if we can take a second to step back and ask ourselves, okay, you know, can we potentially get hurt or hurt somebody else or some equipment with this? We might think a little bit more about what we need to do or maybe in the case not do when a customer asks us to do something.
3: Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think that that's the right position. You know, if, a, if a customer is asking you to do something that's not within OSHA guidelines or against them or something that's just inherently not safe, To be able to say, no, let's, let's think about this. Maybe there's a better way to go about this rather than just feeling that you have to comply because it was the customer's request.
0: Yeah, and I would also say that if you're listening to this and you can't remember the last time you had a safety conversation within your company, that maybe that's something good that can come from this conversation. You know, go to the people that you're in charge of or the people that are in charge of you and ask them, you know, maybe this is something that we should do and maybe give them some suggestions from what we were just talking about.
3: Yeah, I think that's a, a great idea. I know that, you know, when I first started the industry, I didn't have any safety training, uh, didn't have glasses or even just gloves with me when I would go out to do my service work. And I remember priming a pump one time and, you know, it was kind of leaking around the fittings as I was trying to get the tubing snugged up and that kind of thing. And looking down and my hands were starting to turn orange. I said, oh, that's probably not good. And running to the bathroom, trying to wash it off. And then The next day, just a layer of skin peeling off my hands. And, uh, you know, that was just a really poor situation to be in. You know, I didn't take the time to read the SDS sheets or to know what chemicals I was working with. In hindsight, it was glutaraldehyde. But, you know, I just shouldn't have been in that situation from the company's perspective either. You know, they should have provided some training at that time. So, yeah, I think it's good just for all of us to take that personal responsibility. You know, those SDS sheets are out there and available for our protection, almost all of them say to wear a minimum of safety glasses. You know, when I go to work, I put my glasses on when I get in my truck and I take them off when I pull into my driveway at the end of the day, because some of that damage is irreversible. And at the end of the day, it's, it's your own body that you're um, trying to protect. You know, nobody's going to be able to give you your eyes back if you make a poor decision or you're not informed about the dangers of a situation.
0: You're absolutely right. And again, nobody plans to get hurt and it happens in an instant. I'm always surprised when I see people that just refuse to wear hearing protection. And I've, I've been fairly diligent with that in my career, but my dad wasn't. And he was losing parts of his hearing, especially in the high range, because of all the chiller wine that he was exposed to during his career. So there's just no reason for that. Take a moment, use proper hearing protection, and uh, you'll be able
3: to hear for the rest of your life, which I'm sure everybody wants to do. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's fantastic advice. And it's just easy to do.
0: Justin, thank you for that information. A lot of times we don't think about safety until it's too late. And I hope that that's not you, but I know a lot of times we get stuck in the day to day. I need to work quickly. I'm not taking the extra few seconds that it takes to scan the area to make sure that it's safe to make sure that I have everything that I need to protect myself. And folks, it happens so quickly. An accident can put us out of commission for several days or much, much, much longer. And I think you know what I mean by that. So take the time, make sure that what you are doing is safe. Because after all, if you get hurt, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how fast you were servicing that account if you got hurt in the process. The final clip that we're going to listen to is from episode 137. And that was the first of a two-part episode that we did with Brett Alexander of Evapco where he talks about all things cooling towers and really gives us the industrial water treater a peek inside of how manufacturing looks at cooling towers. And we learned all sorts of terms that we may or may not have been using. And if you were like me, you called everything A cooling tower. And from listening to these episodes, you learned that that is not necessarily the case. And when we use the correct terminology, more specific terminology, and we're talking with the manufacturer, we're able to get right down to the issue because now we're both thinking about the same piece of equipment that we're having a particular issue with. And we don't have to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. So, Take it from me, learn the proper terms because when you're talking with other people, it just makes explaining yourself a lot better. Well, another issue that I asked Brett about was what happens when our customers get new cooling towers. And folks, I'm gonna be the first to say that we should be notified just like everybody else when a customer decides to replace or add a new cooling tower but that does not always happen. So I'm talking to all the water treaters now when you know that there's a new cooling tower or evaporative condenser or fluid cooler because we now we just learned all those new terms coming in we need to talk to that customer and say hey do you know we need to do these things to properly pacify that metal So it does not corrode prematurely. Customers aren't going to know that. And then they're going to assume 12 months down the road when they're having issues that your program is not working properly. So again, Brett was very nice to share his uh, bulletin with us. So go to the show notes page. It will have some information on that. And folks, you can charge for this. I mean, This is up and above what your regular water treatment program is. So by all means you should charge for going out there and doing all the extra stuff that you are doing. Now the issue we have a lot is we're not notified that a new cooling tower is going in. We show up for our service and we just see a new cooling tower is on the roof and I don't know what to do about that. We just need to make sure that we're talking to our customers more. Brett, do you have any advice on that?
4: Yeah, I was just I was going to jump in. That's that is difficult, right? Because how do you I always preach, you got to know the materials, the construction and the equipment that you're dealing with. But you can learn those when you first go in and you do like a plant survey at a new account. But you do that, for, if you need to do passivation, then like what we said, it's already too late. So I think at that point, it's just, I guess, I don't know, job to job how you're figuring out when you're getting these new towers, I just, just just staying in contact with the facility manager, if it's a big central plant or it's a hospital hotel, if they're doing a change out, you know, a replacement job, you know, just staying on top with them, be like, hey, I need to know the timeline. We need to talk passivation a couple months beforehand. Because if it's a new account, there's sometimes, you know, your new commercial building across the street, and they're like, hey, we know your company. We're going to give you the job. They might not know if it's a closed circuit cooler with a galvanized coil or just a all stainless steel cooling tower which won't need passivation. So it's just really trying to get the right person that knows what that unit is going to be made out of, what you know, what the materials of construction are going to be, finding that right person. Yeah, definitely communicating with your customer and
0: I would guess more often than not Most water treaters, I won't say most water treaters, some water treaters do not communicate with their customers as well as they should. Engineers are very uh, overworked these days, so they're always off doing something because they don't have the staff that they used to have, and it's hard to find them. And a lot of times, if we're trying to get so many things done in a day, it takes a lot of time out of the water treater's day to go and find those. But it is so worth taking the time to do that because you might just find a new cooling tower on the roof if you don't. Folks, if you go to the show notes page of this episode, you can see that we have reposted the materials that were mentioned in today's episodes, or you can go straight to the episodes that they came from. Again, I want to thank all of my guests. So we had Janet Stout, Justin Ranger, Reed Hutchinson, and Brett Alexander. Thank you so much for coming on Scaling Up H2O yet again. And folks, I hope you have a great rest of your 2020. I hope you have a great New Year celebration. And folks, 2021 is just going to be spectacular. So my wish to all of you is that you are safe and you have the best rest of 2020. Have a great rest of the year, folks.